little bit of review. Uh, I said 12, 13, and 14 is a unit. So remember what you read in 12 and 13 of Revelation. In 12, you had that complete view of history from a Christian perspective, from the birth of Christ to the enemy's reaction to the birth of Christ, uh, to the enemy trying to destroy uh, Christ, to the enemy trying to destroy the people that gave birth to Christ, and then to the enemy trying to destroy the offspring of the woman who gave uh, birth to Christ. That's sort of our view of history. Then in chapter 13, it told you specifically how the enemy, the dragon, the serpent, the devil, uh, seeks to destroy uh, the people of Christ. So in in chapter 13, you you were introduced to the beast from the land and the, or from the sea and the beast from the land. So you've got in chapters 12 and 13, you've got the picture of Christian history, how it progresses and then how it wraps up at the end of days. So in chapter 14 is the end of days. And remember when we started chapter 12, if you think back to that point, uh, I actually showed you how chapter 14 ended. Uh, You have a return of Christ in chapter 14. Again, in the book of Revelation, it's not linear. In the book of Revelation, you have a sequence of cycles of units that teach us a Christian philosophy of history. So that's why you, you run into the return of Christ several times in the book of Revelation, not because there'll be several returns of Christ, but you have several presentations of Christian history and how Christian history culminates. So uh, we are at chapter 14, so chapter 14 shows how it culminates. So again, 12 and 13, you're looking at Christian history, how the enemy comes after the people of Christ, persecutes, kills the people of Christ. Again, more people died for their faith in Jesus in the 20th century than any other Christian century. But that's been the way we've lived all of our Christian centuries, is with the production of martyrs. And as uh, Tertullian said, um, the, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The more they come at us, uh, the more the movement seems to prevail. Uh, But that's been the history of the church. That's chapter 12 and 13 of Revelation. And then we move in chapter 14 to see how it sort of ends. Uh, The way chapter 14 begins is with a picture. And you need to see the book of Revelation, not just hear it. It begins with a picture of what's going on with those Christians that um, the, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land kill. You know, we need to read chapter 14. I suspect you probably could tell us what was going on with those Christians that are killed there in chapter 13 and chapter 12. Uh, but it's a beautiful picture. Look at 14, 1 and following. Then I, John, looked. You need to see this. Looked. And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on the foreheads. Um, where is the earthly Mount Zion? Yeah, thank you, Jerusalem. Yeah, um, that's that's Mount Zion. Mount Zion um, is part of Jerusalem. Um, Marty, some of the rest of you will be there uh, toward the end of next week. Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. All of those are names for the city. Uh, Mount Mount Zion is actually a part of of Jerusalem. So what you're seeing here, though, is a heavenly Mount Zion. Uh, you probably know. Well, I know you know. When you sing the hymn, we're marching to Zion. 
You're not marching to Jerusalem over in Israel, right? When you sing the hymn, you're marching to Zion. Where are you marching to? Heaven. So by the time the Christian tradition comes along, uh, thanks to particular books like the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, Zion, the New Jerusalem, the Heavenly Jerusalem, those have become images, metaphors, titles for heaven. So this Mount Zion that you're looking at is a heavenly Mount Zion. You know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that literally means city of peace. And you probably also know that Jerusalem, Jerusalem, has never been a city of peace. Just in the last 2,000 years, um, they've been conquered 11 times, ruled by 11, 11 different people groups. Um, and that's, that was after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, that was after the Roman captivity. So Jerusalem, the, the, the earthly Jerusalem, has never been a city of peace. So that's why we Christians look forward to the day when there will be a Jerusalem that is what God has always intended it to be, that will be a city of peace. And that's, uh, that's why we call heaven the New Jerusalem uh, or the Mount Zion. So here you see an image of heaven being referred to as Mount Zion. The Lamb is standing. Do you remember in the book of Acts when the first martyr in Christian history, not the first martyr in the book of Revelation, but the first martyr in Christian history. By the way, who's the first martyr in Christian history in the book of Acts? Stephen. When Stephen is martyred in the book of Acts, he sees Jesus standing. And, you know, if you're, if you're in a traditional church, probably every Sunday, if you're in a traditional worship service in a traditional church, you, you say that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. So whenever you see Jesus standing, like in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, or right here, he's standing to receive someone, just like he's standing to receive Stephen. Uh, here he's standing uh, because he's in heaven. He's receiving the people that the beast... And all of their ancestors and all of their descendants have been killing who are faithful to Christ. And that's why you see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, and with him 144,000. You saw that number. We've already encountered that number in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. Um, I'll just tell you what I told you back then. Uh, most of us assume this 144,000 is the whole people of God in heaven because... 12 times 12, and remember every time we see 24, um, you know, 12 times 12, 12 apostles for the New Testament community, 12 tribes of Israel for the Old Testament community. So, you know, I hate math, but I've been told 12 times 12 to the thousandth power, that is 144,000, right? Okay, good. There you go. So this is the whole people of God, both Old Covenant and New Covenant. They're in heaven. Jesus is standing there receiving more into heaven. Because um, you just come out of the chapter with the beast. And if you want to know what happens to any of us that fall afoul of the beast, this is what happens. We stay true to Christ. This is what happens to us. And notice, as soon as John tells you, uh, these 144,000 who had his name the Lamb's name, and the Father's name written on their foreheads are there. First thing you should think is where you left off in chapter 13. You know, the, the, the followers of the beast, they are marked, right? Followers of the beast are marked. Their forehead, uh, the way they think, their arms, the way they act are marked by the beast. Well, we too are marked uh, by the, the name of uh, God, uh, when you become a 
Christian, you are a little Christ, a little anointed one. Uh, one of the early churches terms for baptism was sealing. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have been marked. You have been branded as belonging to Jesus Christ. So you saw the, the followers of the beast get branded last week, and I don't think it's a literal brand. I think it's a, a spiritual brand. You've been branded uh, with, with uh, the, the presence of God and the Spirit in your life. So here we are. This is to be contrasted with the followers of the beast and how they were branded. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was, well, let me stop there. By the way, that sounds very much like Psalm 29. If it sounds familiar, that was the text that was read. That was the psalm text read in worship this past week. Uh, seven references to the voice of God in Psalm 29. A lot of the references being described as um, um, with, ter- with, with, with natural terms, you know, like the sound of a flood, roaring mighty waters. Uh, that's the voice of God. So, and you've heard these sort of phrases before. Uh, the voice I heard was like the sound of the harpist playing on their harps. I like what the way King James says it. Harpist harping, I think is the way King James says it. So here's, if you've been waiting on harps in heaven, here you go. Uh, there's not a lot in the Bible about harps in heaven, but it's there. So, um, um, so you hear this loud voice. You hear uh, the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I hope you like harp music. Verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Don't need to say much about that because you've already encountered that in Revelation 5. That new song, that new song of deliverance, that new song of salvation that we sing, those of us who have been delivered by the work of the Lamb. And remember back in chapters 4, chapters Chapter well, actually one, four, five. The 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 twenty four elders stand for um, the whole people of God that are in heaven. Uh, no one, and you know this, no one could learn that song except the hundred forty four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. Um, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the earth dwellers. According to the book of Revelation, the earth dwellers and those whose citizenships are in heaven. Only those who have been redeemed from among the earth dwellers can sing the song. It's the song of salvation, song of deliverance, song of redemption. Um, that's very much like the song of Moses that the children of Israel sang after they made it through uh, the, the um, Red Sea. So yeah, only those who have been redeemed will get to sing this, the 144,000, the people of God on the other side. Um, two principles that I keep reminding you of. I'm more than, I've reminded you more than two, but two I'll remind you of right now. Uh, again, sometimes, particularly in the book of Revelation, the thought, the idea, the teaching is clear, even if the details may not be. Um, so focus on the clarity of the teaching. The teachings are usually abundantly clear. We win. That's part of the teaching. We win. We prevail. Um, the enemy does not. Um, human history will wrap up the way God wants it to wrap up one day. Those are the big things. Those things are clear in the book of Revelation, even though the details uh, give us pause to wonder at times. And the other thing that I hope that you've figured out by this point in the book of Revelation, it is highly, highly, highly symbolic. Be consistent. You know, keep it symbolic. Don't keep 91% of it symbolic and, you know, the other 9% find literal helicopters or Ronald Reagan. I mean, keep it symbolic. I mean, we know, I mean, even the people who try to make it as literal as possible, there's a lot of it they have to say symbolic. We're getting ready to read a text here 
that for most of us in the room, we are grateful is symbolic. And we know what it means because we've read the rest of the book. So look at verse 4. After it says, no one could learn that song except 144,000, the people of God, who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, if you're a literalist, you got some work to do. Now, I've got some Catholic friends who want to take this literally. Catholic priest friends, not Catholics, it's Catholic priest friends who want to take this literally. About the only people going to be there are virgins who have not defiled themselves with women. So, you know, if you take this literally, there's a lot of problems. Uh, as to all of us are going to be left out. Um, if you're female, you should have a little issue with this, your fault that keeps people out of heaven. So obviously, again, the book of Revelation is symbolic. I can't find anybody that wants to take this literally. It, it, the book of Revelation is symbolic. If you had a Jewish rabbi standing here who understands the, the book, he will tell you that throughout the Hebrew Bible, and it's going to become clear in chapter 16, 17, and 18 of the book of Revelation, it's sort of thrown out here. He's going to explain it in a Jewish way in chapter 16, 17, and 18. But if you look um, at the Hebrew Bible, idolatry is almost 80% of the time referred to as spiritual fornication, being unfaithful to God. Uh, as a Christian, uh, the bride of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, being unfaithful to Christ. Um, I grew up hearing sermons, because it's in the text. We're a little sensitive now. I apologize to the people listening to the podcast, but I didn't write this stuff. I grew up listening to preachers talk about don't go a-whoring after false gods. You're going to learn in chapters 16, 17, and 18 about the harlot. The harlot is Rome. The harlot is the beast. The harlot are the flowers of this world that come at us. Um, because you saw the beautiful woman back in chapter 12, right? That gives birth to the Messiah. Well, you're going to run across the harlot soon. Uh, the harlot is the, um, the epitome of, of evil. So, you know, if you could have a fourth person in the unholy trinity, it'd be the harlot that we're getting ready to spend some time with. So in, in, in Jewish thought, um, idolatry, uh, cheating on your God, idolatry is when you go whoring after other gods. That's what we know he's talking about here. There's been no serious uh, Bible student over the last 2,000 years that would say, no, we're talking, you have to be a virgin, be in heaven, and you women just are left out because you're the ones that mess their bells up. I mean, nobody's going to look at this text and say that. We know what it means. The people in heaven are those who stayed true to Christ, who didn't go uh, a-whoring after the other gods. Um, the book of Hosea in the Hebrew Bible. You probably haven't read the book of Hosea in the Hebrew Bible lately. That whole book is about this concept, to uh, not play the harlot, to stay true. You know, and again, the, one of the titles for the church, you'll see it in chapter 21, is the Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ has got to stay true to Christ. And um, so we know what, what he's saying here. It is these, the ones who are in heaven, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is they who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And again, we know what that is. We're the disciples. We're following hard 
in the dust of the feet of Rabbi Jesus. I mean, we're following Jesus wherever he leads us. Uh, so wherever he goes, these have been redeemed. I mean, he's telling you this over and over and over. You know who these people are. These have been redeemed from all those earth dwellers. We have been redeemed as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Think about the Hebrew Bible and first fruits. When you're harvesting your, your produce, the first fruits are simply the first part of your harvest that you give to God. Uh, the first fruits are dedicated to God. That's an act of thanksgiving for everything else that God will give you. So those of us who are deemed saved, delivered, that are in heaven, uh, we, we are the um, first fruits, the celebration of all that God has done in history. Um, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they were blameless. Um, take you back to John's writing in the Gospel of John. Uh, one of the things that uh, Jesus said about the devil that he says very directly in the Gospel of John, he says um, he's talking to some people that he's having some strong issues with, and he says, you are like your father, the devil, who is the father of lies. Lies come from the devil, so we shouldn't participate. We need to be a chip off the old block in regards to God, not a chip off the old block in regards to the devil. So we need, we, that's why all of these things are, are defining the same people, the people who have given their life to Christ, the people who have tried to stay spotless and blameless, the ones who follow after Christ, the ones who didn't go a-whoring after other gods. Uh, so this, this, in verses 1 through 5, is a beautiful picture of heaven. You know, should you be worried about what happens to those that the beasts kill, don't need to worry much because this is a picture of how they're taken care of. Then, beginning at verse 6, you got these three angels. Uh, they're, they're bringing some messages. And again, this is, um, uh, I think this piece has to be the end of days. This is at the end of history. So those of us, we're either here during the end of history or we're here on Mount Zion during the end of history. We're in one of these places during the end of history. But then, beginning at verse 6, you see what the end of history looks like. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with not just a gospel, but what kind of gospel? An eternal gospel to proclaim. The word proclaim there is euangelion, to evangelize to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth a sea and the springs of water. So this, if this is the end of history, this is like God trying as hard as God can to continue to give people a chance to receive the gospel, to receive the gift of Christ, to receive the gift of eternal life in Christ. This is obviously um, a presentation of the sharing of the gospel to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. And one thing that the Christian community has said for two millennia now, and there's, there's warrant in the Gospels from the words of Jesus, is that before the end comes, the whole world, the, the Gospel will be preached to the whole world. So uh, I, I don't have to point out, and we said that since we were sending smoke signals. I mean, we said that with scrolls in the Roman Empire, that the end will not come till the whole world hears the gospel. I probably don't have to point out to you that we're at the first 
age in history where that probably is a really easy thing to accomplish now. There's still many, many people groups who have not heard the gospel, but not as many as they used to be. Um, so here you see a, a reference to this kind of end-time preaching of the gospel so that all, all people will have that chance to hear that. Um, it also, by the way, could be an, a, a depiction of what is seen in many places, particularly the Hebrew prophets, that at the end of days there will be a great turning of people to God. Um, you know, evil will increase, but so will the work of God increase. The wheat will grow and the tares will grow. They both grow. So at the end of history, part of what may precede uh, the end of days is a great revival, a great turning. Um, you know, when the people that will be with me in Israel, and I've said this to them several times, if it's worth saying to them again. How many people are in the room? I know Marty's over. Who's going with me to Israel this week? There's a few of you. I keep saying to you that particularly when we're in Jerusalem, it's going to be wall-to-wall people. Now, what you need to do when you say that, see that, is not, boy, these people are getting on my nerves. <laughs> what you need to think is two things. One, this is exactly the way it would have felt like in the day of Jesus. You know, because Jesus only went to Jerusalem during Passover, Sukkot, and Shavuot. He only went to Jerusalem when every Jew that possibly could in the whole known world, literally, uh, in observance of Torah, made their way back to the holy city to observe those festivals. So, yeah, when Jesus was there, why do you think, well, he couldn't afford the housing in the holy city, so he'd go out and sleep in, under the stars in Gethsemane. Uh, that's the only time he went was he was an observant Jew, so he went when the city was packed with pilgrims observing the Jewish holidays. So when you're crowded in Jerusalem, and they're at, a, they're at a almost all-time high for pilgrim, pilgrims going to the Holy Land right now. When you're there and you're getting these people getting on your nerves and say, thank you, God, that I get to experience it like Jesus experienced it. <laughs> and the other thing, another reason why it's packed in Jerusalem today is is very indicative of the great revival that's going on around the world. You see a lot of Africans. You see a lot of Asians there. So all the people that are making pilgrimages there, um, it's, it's a reminder of what God is doing around the world. Uh, the country of Nigeria actually gives a stipend. Uh, they may have changed recently, but I've always been told the country of Nigeria gives a stipend to their Christian population to be able to make a pilgrimage to Israel. Uh, God is doing amazing things around the world. So when you're with me, those of you that will be with me, when you're with me, particularly around the Mount of Olives, going two things. When you're with me on the Mount of Olives, uh, Garden of Gethsemane, well, really all of the Old Sea of Jerusalem, two things. Watch out for pickpockets. Um, yeah, if, if, if you get pickpocketed and you tell me I had $100 in my pocket, I'm, my brain's going to explode. Because I've told you a thousand times, don't carry much money, and please don't have your passport with you when you're out and about. That's the only thing you have to worry about is pickpockets. Um, when it's crowded, watch the pickpockets. And the second thing is just say, thank you, God, I get to experience this like Jesus experienced it. And this is showing me the revival that's going on around the world. And all these people are coming to Jerusalem. So, um, yeah. So I think an end-time revival is part of what we've looked for for 2,000 years. And again, I would never even come close to even hinting at the fact I'm setting a date because the Bible strictly prohibits that, setting a date for the return of Christ. Some people need to tell these television preachers that. And it's really If Jesus says he doesn't know, I'm not about to even hint that I know. 
But with that being said, worldwide preaching of the gospel and great revival going on around the world today. Hmm. So just cogitate on that for a while. Anyway, I think there in verses 6 and 7 you see an image of... um, of the gospel being preached at the end. Verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She, you'll be introduced to Babylon the Great as the harlot eventually. She, who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Remember Jezebel way back when, in the, in, when we talked about the seven churches? Jezebel gets blown up on steroids by the end of the book. She's the harlot that's causing everybody to be unfaithful to God. So, But notice what's being declared here. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, a couple things there. Babylon, you know the history of Babylon. Um, that's the country that conquered and destroyed the first temple of the Jewish people. So Babylon is indicative for the Jewish mind of the most evil people out there that come against the people of God. They destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the first temple, carried many of their people off into um, captivity. 586 to 597 B.C., we know that. Traumatic event, much of the Old Testament is written around it. Um, Just like Babylon is kind of the um, paradigm for evil world empire, for the Jewish people still is. Uh, Rome is sort of the paradigm for evil world empires for the Christian people because in John's day it was Rome that was doing terrible things to the Christian people. But the Christian community, being very Jewish, used the word Babylon to talk about evil empire. Uh, in First Peter, you're pretty much told, and by the way, you're going to be told later in the book of Revelation, but in First Peter, you're told Babylon is Rome. Um, you're going to see this harlot sitting on seven hills eventually. Um, so Babylon is a, is a symbol, a cipher, a metaphor uh, in, 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 God's, in the mind of God's people for the empires that come against us. Um, so you know about Babylon. So it's, it's not at least a bit shocking that the final empire, the empire, all the empires of this world that are against God, you can put them all together and call them Babylon. Um, you know, the kingdoms of this world that one day will become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. All the kingdoms of this world, you might as well call Babylon. Oh, here's an aside. Um, and Caleb, if you're listening to this, I'd tell you this if you were in the room. Um, you know, my son does political consulting. He is working for a candidate in a city in New York. And if you're from here, I don't mean to offend you, uh, except for a little bit, because you shouldn't. Anyway, there's a city in New York named Babylon. Why in the world would you ever name your city Babylon? That's like naming your church Sardis. I mean, which I know of one. But why would you ever do that? Yeah, I asked my son, what are you working on right now? And he said, I'm working for this candidate who's, he's reading through all the minutes of the Babylon City Town Council meetings for the last couple of years. I'm like, the name of that city is what? Babylon. Yeah, people need, you know, it's like I knew somebody who named their kid Nimrod one day. Go read the Bible and see about Nimrod before you name your child Nimrod uh, or Babylon. Anyway, Babylon's not a good name. That's a symbol for all the people that try to destroy the Jewish people. Like Rome becomes a symbol of all the people that tries to destroy God's people. So that's Babylon. Notice she's declared fallen. Notice she is being declared fallen in the present tense. Is fallen. 
fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Um, so it is so assured, even though it's something to happen in the future, it is so assured as being presented with present tense. If you happen to be a citizen of Babylon, I don't mean the one in New York City or New York State, but if you happen to be a citizen of Babylon instead of the citizen of the kingdom of God, your kingdom is assured destruction. It may not happen tomorrow, but it is so assured destruction is presented here as fallen, fallen is Babylon. One other piece, um, a little trivia. I said on Sunday, I was preaching about the holiness of God, and I said that in the Hebrew language, you know, we do E-R and E-S-T to create superlatives, better and best. Um, they don't have that capability in Hebrew. So in the Hebrew language, they just repeat it to make it more and more superlative. That's why the angels flying around the throne of God, what are they shouting? Holy, holy, holy. Thrice holy. God's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Um, when Esau sold his birthright to Isaac, it was red porridge. Now, in the Hebrew, they don't translate this way because you won't know what they're doing. When, when, when Isaac asked for some of that um, porridge, Jacob asked for some of that porridge, uh, he asked for that red, red porridge. It's very red. Not the most red, but it's very red porridge. Uh, holy, holy, holy is the core characteristic of God. He, he's love, but he's holy love. He's peace, but he's holy peace. He's grace, but he's holy grace. His core characteristic is holiness. That's what the angels are singing. So here, um, it's not fallen, fallen, fallen. It probably should be, but it's fallen, fallen. That's why you repeat yourself uh, if you're in a Hebrew culture. This is written in Greek. That's why you repeat yourself in the Hebrew culture. Uh, sometimes when I was growing up, my mother would repeat herself for emphasis to me. <laughs> Um, anyway, fallen, fallen is present tense, Babylon the Great. Um, and notice the connection to sexual morality there. She's made everybody commit spiritual adultery with her. Verse 9, another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, all this goes back to last week, he also would drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength. In the ancient world, you always cut your wine with water to make it last longer and to reduce its strength. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with... Well, let me stop there. This whole drinking the wrath of, of God, um, that image is in Isaiah, in Jeremiah. It's scattered throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the, the experiencing the wrath of God is like drinking uh, the, the wrath of God, drinking the cup of God's wrath. And he will be tormented with fire, and you could say fire and, instead of sulfur. You say fire and brimstone. What's the memory here? Sodom and Gomorrah will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Notice it does not say in the presence of the redeemed people of God. There were documents written from uh, the first couple centuries um, of the Christian era and before that, like in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, where, and some, some of you may want this, but the Bible won't give you this, that part of your joy in heaven would be watching the torment of those in hell. 
that's, that, that was being written in some other places. It doesn't make it into the New Testament. That is a sub-Christian concept. Hope you know that. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon one time said, that great preacher, he said, when you preach hell, and it's in the Bible, you need to preach it with tears in your eyes. I get concerned about some preachers who seem to enjoy the doctrine of hell too much and to make it their primary emphasis. Just like I get worried with some preachers who have ignored it totally and completely. The person in the New Testament that tells us the most about hell is not Paul. It's not John the Revelator. It is who? Give me the next guess. Jesus. It's Jesus. That's where we learn the most that we learn about the concept of hell in the New Testament. Uh, here it is. The people who are, you know, belong to the beast, get the mark of the beast. Um, they suffer the wrath of God. They, they, um, they are in the place of fire and brimstone. Notice verse 11. Um, and this has been probably more important in Christian theology than it should be. But it is in Christian theology. And it's in the Bible. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. Uh, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. We've had some debate over the last couple thousand years, and if you took my Purgatory Heaven and Hell course, we talked about it, um, as to whether or not, I mean, you can't get around the concept of hell in the New Testament. Uh, there is debate over, is hell eternal, or will hell burn up one day? That's called annihilationism in Christian tradition. Is hell eternal, or will it come to an end one day? Um, the, the bulk of the church, thanks to verses like this that I just read to you, says hell is eternal. It's eternal torment. Um, most of us don't like that, but I wasn't asked for my opinion when the book was written. Um, yeah, hell, you can't get around that concept in the New Testament. Uh, you can make pretty strong cases on both sides as to whether or not hell is eternal, ongoing term torment, or whether it will come to an end at some point. Um, here is one of the classic verses that's been used for 2,000 years to say it is ongoing torment. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, um, going to get some good stuff now. Now that the text has got your attention, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. As we're being persecuted, as we're being buffeted, as we're being seduced by the harlot. Here's a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God. That speaks to our obedience. And their faith in Jesus, that speaks to our trust. So we need to endure. And then verse 13 is a great verse from the book of Revelation, used in much of my ministry. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead, not just the dead. All people don't go to the white light. In Christian tradition. Notice what it says. Blessed are the dead in the Lord. From now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. In the Lord means connected to, to Christ, in the body of Christ, benefiting from the work of Christ. you got to do something within the Lord. Blessed are they who die in the Lord. Um, you're not just blessed if you die, but you're blessed if you die in the Lord. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Um, don't, don't take rest to an extreme. We are conscious, uh, unless you are Seventh-day Adventist, 
Uh, the rest of the Christian tradition says we are conscious during the interim period while, while our body's resting in the ground. Our spirit is um, under the throne of God. Our spirit or the 144,000 around the throne. Our spirits are alive and well while our bodies are resting in the grave. One day spirit and body will be united. That's why I put that little paragraph in all of our funeral bulletins. To make that it's not easy, it's paradoxical, but that's the Christian tradition. That's why if you look at me and say, Well, when you die, does, does your body rest in the ground or does your spirit go to be with God? And the traditional Christian answer is what? Yes and yes. Um, but your body rests in the ground. You can say rest in peace as far as your body goes, because uh, the body will await the resurrection of the dead at the end of history. But you are fully alive in the presence of God. Uh, so don't make rest more extreme than the Bible makes it. Uh, when I think of rest, I don't think, I mean, if you make me like rest in the sense of do nothing, I, my brain will explode. But if you make me rest in the sense of refreshment, recreation, doing a lot of really good things around the throne of God, that, that is, that feels more like eternal rest to me. So you are, there is a rest involved. It doesn't mean unconsciousness. There's a rest involved from the labors and their deeds follow them. There's some things here on earth that you do get to take with you. It's not your money. It's not your real estate. There's some things, the love and the grace and the peace and the joy that God has given you right now through the power of the Holy Spirit, that will continue and grow when you go. Those kind of deeds will follow you. Another kind of deed, I think, now this is, I can't give you Bible on this one, but I'll just give you my opinion on this one. I share it with a lot of other people. Um, maybe one of the deeds that will follow you there too, one of your great rewards that you'll receive there, is you will get to know, you'll get to meet the people and know for sure who they are, the people that you influence for Christ, the people that may be there because of your witness to them. You know, that's more important to me than any real estate in heaven. That's more important to me than any golden streets. Sometimes I hear people talk about what they want out of heaven, and they make it kind of materialistic and greedy. Um, be careful with that. That gives you almost a, more of a picture of a Muslim heaven than a Christian heaven. Our heaven is intensely spiritual. Um, but there's some things you'll take with you. Um, but make sure it's things that will honor God. Okay, to wrap up, here comes the end. Uh, first, I think you see, I, I'll cut to the chase, we're at 1 o'clock. First, you're going to see, I think, the gathering of God's people. And then you're going to see the judgment on those who don't belong to God. So I wish I could say more, but here's the text. Verse 14 and following. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and see it on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. This has to be Jesus. With a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the temple, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is your rapture. That word doesn't occur in the Bible, by the way. Uh, but if, this is the concept. You're going to be gathered to Christ if you're here on this earth and not on Mount Zion. You'll be gathered to Christ at the end. So there's Christ gathering uh, his to himself. But then there's another gathering that will happen. Look at verse 17. Another kind of harvest. Um, that was the harvest, 14 following. Verse 17 following is sort of the reaping of the vintage. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. Remember the altars where the martyrs are, who are saying, How long, O God? 
This other angel comes from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had uh, the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. The ancient world called wine the blood of grapes. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And you know this. You've sung the battle hymn of the Republic. It's based on this. And it talks about God's judgment. Then verse 20 is kind of illustrative of how... um, what it looks like for God's wrath to be poured out. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Remember, Jesus was crucified outside the city. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And you probably have a little number that takes you to the bottom of the page and helps you out on that one. 1,600 stadia is about how far? Uh, give me the miles. 180, there you go. You, you're, you should have another that says like 180, 184 miles. Uh, by the way, that is the length. Most of us assume John knows this. That is the length of uh, the Holy Land from Mount Hermon, which is still the far north of Israel, down to the, to, down to the end of the Dead Sea. So um, it, a, lot of, a lot of wrath being poured out. So you want to be part of the first harvest, not part of the second harvest. You want to be part of the harvest that Christ comes after his own, not the second harvest there. Okay, we're over time. Uh, I sort of say go in peace, but instead I'll say shalom. And talk to your visitors. Talk to the people around you.